Welcome to the second episode in our three-part On the Case series on the recent raft of decisions relating to retail and leisure CVAs and restructurings. I'm joined once again by Julie Gatenio, partner at CMS. Great to have you back, Julie. Thanks very much, Jess. It's been a busy week. I'm sure it has. So um, this time we're going to be looking in detail at the High Court decision in respect of the Virgin Active Restructuring Plan. But uh, there have been some further developments to note since last week's episode uh, when we focused on New Look. So first off, um, permission to appeal has been granted uh, in the New Look case, hasn't it? Yes, that's right, Jess. Um, We know that the landlord group has been given leave, leave to appeal. And given the judge's decision on a number of issues that will impact on all future CVAs, it it isn't surprising that the landlord group will um, seriously be considering now pursuing that appeal. Mm. Do you you think that if pursued that the the Court of Appeal will be able to hear that case this year? Uh, That's a good question. Um, Court timetables have obviously been extremely stretched. So um, it's it's a, a a good question whether or not they can squeeze it in before the end of the year. They may do, um, particularly because the new look CVA is ongoing, um, and they, so they may well try to to squeeze it in. We still have at least more, just over half a year, but we'll see. Um, other cases I've been involved in, it's taken a lot longer to mm. get to appeal. Yeah, well, well, we'll look at the implications of that and maybe some of the potential uncertainty that might be created by an appeal in the, in the next episode when we're, when we're summing up all three cases. But uh, the, the other thing to note today is that um, judgment was given on Monday in the third of our trilogy of cases involving the Regis hairdressing group. Uh, and we will also we will consider that case more thoroughly uh, in our third and final part next week. But what, what would you say the headline point is to note from Regis? I suppose two points, really. Obviously, first of all, a lot of the key issues um, common to CVAs had already been decided in the new look judgment. So um, we know we know what those decisions were. Um, But the landlords in this in Regis did at least have an element of success proving unfair prejudice. And one of the arguments which they raised on the specific facts of this case Mm. and were able to get the CVA revoked. Um, although in the, on the particular circumstances, that's largely academic. Um, and I'll, I'll cover the details in the, in the next podcast. But um, that is a key differentiator in that they did at least um, succeed on unfair prejudice and the CVA was revoked. So um, that there is at least some positivity, although um, a lot of the other uh, decisions and comments made were uh, similarly unhelpful. But um, I think it's safe to say that overall landlords will be feeling pretty scarred by the judgments of the last week. Uh, I'm sure you're right. And But uh, it's good to know there's, there's plenty of reason for people to listen into our third episode next time. Um, so with that out of the way, uh, on to Virgin Active, which involved a restructuring plan uh, rather than a CVA. So can you explain for us how a restructuring plan works uh, in the light of the changes introduced by the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020, in what way the process differs from a CVA and and why certain tenants may prefer one form of restructuring over the other. And I do hope you'll give special attention to what is known as the cross-class cram-down. Yes, well, I think any discussion on restructuring plans um, will will obviously have reference to that. I think it's worth um, starting by noting that plans were introduced by um, Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, as you said, but into um, the Companies Act as a new Part 26A, which is a corporate um, rescue tool. 
So it's with the purpose is, is, is to enable viable but struggling companies to continue. So it's seen rather as a corporate rescue remedy rather than as a sort of new process where the company is insolvent. Um, I think what the key the key thing about um, restructuring plans, um, particularly compared with, say, CVAs, is that it's a court led process, mm-hmm. very similar to the process for schemes of arrangement under Part 26. Um, and this, of course, is 20, Part 26A. And the court retains absolute discretion whether or not to sanction a plan. And unlike CVAs, for example, the plan, a plan can go much wider. So it can restructure the company, it can compromise secured lenders, its shareholders, it can reallocate shares, um, all those sorts of things, rather than a CVA, which, although often linked to wider restructuring, as we saw in New Look, um, can only compromise unsecured creditors. So the most prominent feature of the new plan is the ability for one class of creditors, for example, the lenders, to impose the plan on another class, for example, landlords, under what is known as the cross-class cram-down. And that feature is new. And whilst plans closely follow the structure of uh, Part 26 schemes, the cram-down tool is only available in Part 26A. So the cross-class cram-down applies where one or more classes of creditor vote against uh, the plan or the, or do, the um, requisite majority doesn't vote in favour of the plan at the meeting, um, subject to the satisfaction of two conditions uh, in Part 26A. So those two conditions are condition A, that members of the dissenting class are no worse off under the plan than under the relevant alternative. And condition B, that at least one class of creditors who will receive a payment in or who has a genuine economic interest in the relevant alternative has voted in favour. So the relevant alternative is what is the most likely outcome for the company if the plan isn't approved. And the court emphasised in Virgin Active that it was the most likely outcome. And whilst there might be a range of possibilities, the outcome, it doesn't have to be definite. It's not what is definite, but um, or even more what, what is more likely than not. But what on the evidence is most likely? So providing one creditor class, say the lenders, vote for the plan and another class votes against, if the conditions for cram down are met, the court can still sanction the plan. So effectively, one class can cram down the other. And it's a powerful tool. As we've seen in Virgin, it means companies can engage with lenders and shareholders to the exclusion of landlords or other unsecured creditors, lock in the secured lenders, other supporters to approve the plan, and then, knowing that there's likely to be a dissenting class, rely on cross-class cram-down to get the plan sanctioned. Whilst the concept and reality of one set of creditors carrying the vote in CVAs at the expense of those landlords who voted against feels very similar. Mm-hmm. That only applies to the extent there's a sufficient body of creditors in a CVA to carry the, who carry the value for voting purposes. So if the voting rights of landlords is sufficiently high to carry the vote, then a CVA might not be achievable. In a plan, that issue won't arise because as long as there's one class of creditors voting in favour, 
then subject to satisfaction of the conditions that I mentioned, the mm. plan can be approved as the legislation allows and subject to the court's sanction. So previously, um, companies would tend to pay landlords um, arrears of rent so that their voting rights were based solely on the value placed on their future unascertained debt and generally meant that landlords didn't have sufficient value to vote down an unacceptable CVA. I think in current times where COVID arrears are high and the company needs to write off those arrears, arrears as part of the restructuring, then a CVA may be simply unviable. And mm. that's basically the position in Virgin Active. They knew that they wouldn't have the, the necessary votes to get the to get a CVA approved. So basically, if the company can't get a CVA approved, then it's likely it will pursue a plan as Virgin did. Now, aside from the fact that the company can deal with its restructuring in one place under a plan, the other reason uh, a company might choose a plan is to obtain greater certainty by virtue of the court's sanction. Mm -hmm. Now, whilst that decision might be subject to appeal, companies may well think that the scope and appetite for appeal is lower than the prospect of a CVA challenge, despite obviously the new look and Regis decisions, and particularly now we know there's a, a prospect of appeal. Okay, and that's nice and, and clear and make, makes the distinction very easy to understand. And just looking specifically at that, you mentioned it's obviously a court-led process, just in terms of uh, the, the different court stages, the, the hearings that are involved. Um, what, is, what, what are they uh, and, and how does it work uh, in a restructuring plan? Yeah, okay. So, um, yes, in a plan, um, the company will start the process. Well, it will typically start the process by obviously engaging with creditors um, and uh, it, it will depend on, on, on <laughs> depend on who, who it decides to have that engagement with. It should really be engaging with all. But uh, as we know, that doesn't happen. Um, but it launches the process by serving what's called a practice statement letter, letter to creditors with its proposal. And um, following that, we'll um, call a convening hearing at which uh, the court's permission is sought to convene the relevant class meetings. So mm -hmm. they are the creditors' meetings at which creditors will vote on the plan. Now, the convening hearing is largely for the court to consider issues based on jurisdiction and, in particular, the composition of the class creditor meetings as well as any other issues that might be relevant to, to those meetings. So at the Virgin Active convening hearing, one of the major issues raised by the landlord groups represented was the failure um, by Virgin Active to provide information which they said was needed to properly assess the plan in order to vote at the creditors' meetings. And the reluctance on the company's part to disclose this information was based on grounds it was commercially sensitive and highly confidential. The company following uh, the court's order to convene the meetings will uh, issue a notice uh, of the creditors' meetings with it, the plan documents and explanatory statement. And the different classes of creditors are invited to vote on the plan at those class meetings. Following the meetings, the chairperson will issue a statement confirming the voting outcome. And if any of the classes voting don't reach the requisite 75% in value of those voting in each class, then the court will need to consider 
whether the conditions for cross-class cramdown have been met before it considers whether to sanction the plan. Mm-hmm. Evidence is exchanged by the interested parties prior to the sanction hearing. And whether or not there are dissenting creditors, the final stage will be the second hearing for the court to decide whether or not to sanction the plan. Okay, and that's, of course, what we were uh, dealing with here, the sanction hearing uh, in Virgin Active. So um, looking more in detail at this specific case, how does the restructuring plan work in Virgin Active and and how are different landlords affected under it? Uh, Sure. Well, first, following sanction by the court, the plans are binding on all those creditors who are included within the plan. Um, under this plan, the or, or there were three plans for three different companies, um, various concessions were made by the secured lenders as to the terms of their loans. And we know that as part of the restructuring, shareholders were putting in new money to fund uh, the turnaround and, and would receive new equity. In respect of the landlords, the plans followed um, the very familiar approach taken in CVAs. So the leases were divided into five categories, with classes A and B being the sites virgin considered profitable and critical to the business, and then those in categories C to E, loss making and of diminishing to no value to the the companies. Mm -hmm. So in summary, uh, category A leases had their rent arrears paid in full and the lease terms unimpaired, save for a move to monthly rent. Category B, um, the rent arrears were compromised for a return under the plan, which was 120% of the estimated administration return, but that was going to be pretty pretty small in comparison to the, the level of arrears of, of certain landlords. Um, but the future rent and lease terms were unchanged, save again for the move to monthly rent. So category B landlords would receive um, rent, future rent uh, uh, under the leases. Category C leases had um, arrears compromised and numerous amendments made to the leases, including reduced future rent, exclusion of liability for rent during further lockdowns, if there are any, um, and with the inclusion of a landlord's right to terminate the lease on notice within 90 days of the restructuring um, effective date. Um, All liability under Category D leases were compromised for a return under the plan, with the landlord's rolling right to terminate. And finally, all liabilities under Cat E leases comprising properties which Virgin had sublet were compromised for a return under the plan. And in addition to um, the various category of, of properties, there were lease guarantees that had been given by the plan companies. And these were varied to reflect amendments to the relevant leases. And there were also uh, varied rights of certain uh, landlords with guarantees against other Virgin Group companies. And finally, there was a group called the General Property Creditors, comprising sort of landlords with Argus and Gargas, where um, they were also compromised in full for a return under the plan. Now, the court was on a very tight timetable when it came to the sanction hearing in Virgin Active, even going to the, the lengths of sitting remotely through a bank holiday. Um, so what was the significance of the date of 10th of May to this case? Yes, not the, not the most fun way to spend a bank holiday <laughs> um, in, in my experience, but uh, interesting. Uh, Virgin's case was that 10th of May was a hard stop date. And if the restructuring plans weren't approved by that date, 
then the companies would quickly run out of uh, sufficient liquidity to carry on trading and would have to be placed into administration. So the companies needed to know whether the plans were approved by 10th of May at the latest, and that drove the court's timetable for um, the creditors' meetings, the exchange of evidence prior to the sanction hearing, and the timing of the sanction hearing, all of which was under a very compressed timetable, considering it was a four and a half day hearing, and um, the parties really only had a, a few weeks between the convening hearing and the sanction hearing to, to do all of that. So with a, a judgment that I imagine was circulated to the parties by that date, Mr Justice Snowden very impressively managed to get his decision handed down publicly on the 12th of May. Uh, so uh, he, we know that he sanctioned the plan, but what, what were some of the main issues that he had to deal with and, and how did he approach them? Yeah, well, it's another mammoth judgment, but the <laughs> two main issues were um, whether the conditions to engage the cross-class cram-down were satisfied and secondly, the exercise of the court's discretion to, to sanction the plans. So starting with um, cross-class cram-down, as I mentioned earlier, two conditions have to be satisfied for this to apply. Here, only condition A was an issue. It was accepted that condition B, which is that an approving class of creditors would receive a payment in or has a genuine econom economic interest in the relevant alternative, was satisfied. So we're only dealing with condition A. So condition A is that no dissenting creditors are worse off under the plan than in the relevant alternative. And as I mentioned earlier, the relevant alternative is the most likely outcome to occur for the plan uh, for the company if the plan isn't approved. Um, breaking that down, the judge had to determine first what the relevant alternative was. Second, what the position of the dissenting creditors would be in the relevant alternative, which the court said was inherently uncertain because it involves the court considering a hypothetical counterfactual itself based on uncertain assumptions. And thirdly, how that position compared with their position under the plan. So the plan company's position was that the relevant alternative was a trading administration based on ev evidence which was given by um, their financial uh, officer and expert valuation evidence. The landlord's arguments focused on the manner in which the companies had negotiated the proposal, which they said was designed by sh the shareholders rather than the companies to elevate the shareholders' interests above unsecured creditors and deny landlords any negotiating leverage. And by not involving the landlords in the negotiations or undertaking an M&A process, there was now only a choice between the plans and administration. Well, the court didn't consider it necessary to consider whether the companies might have acted differently or whether the way the restructuring was negotiated was unfair to other creditors, because the judge found the relevant question was simply what is the relevant alternative now if the plans aren't sanctioned? though the issues raised by the landlords would be part of his consideration on sanction. On that basis, the judge accepted the company's evidence that the trading, that the uh, relevant alternative was a trading administration. Turning to the no worse off test and the likely outcome for dissenting creditors in the relevant alternative, the landlords argued that the court uh, 
couldn't be satisfied that a member of the dissenting class would not be worse off in the relevant alternative. Now, this was primarily a dispute as to valuation, that the landlords also argued that the landlords might be able to negotiate a better outcome in an administration than the planned companies maintained was likely. On the valuation issues, the landlords principally argued that the company should have undertaken a competitive marketing sales process rather than rely on unreliable desktop valuations. However, the court held that the process undertaken by the plan companies was sufficient. There was no absolute obligation requiring them to undertake a full market testing process, particularly where it was unclear how the plan companies might fund that process and whether in an uncertain market it would be the correct approach and the results of such testing would have to be treated with extreme caution. Ultimately, the court accepted the plan company's valuation evidence and didn't find that there was anything in the landlord's arguments to impugn that evidence. The landlord's arguments that the company's evidence as to the likely outcomes for landlords in the relevant alternative were wrong um, was argued, firstly because this relied on evidence from Mason and Partners um, as to the ERVs for the properties, which the landlord said was un inherently unreliable. On that point, the court found that the landlords had been free to adduce evidence if they genu genuinely believed they could get a better deal in the relevant alternative, but hadn't done so. Secondly, principally in, in, in respect of Class B landlords, um, they argued that the landlords could negotiate a better deal in the relevant alternative and would be worse off under the plan. However, the judge again accepted the company's evidence as to what the likely outcome of negotiations would be between landlords and an administrator in the relevant alternative and held that no dissenting creditor would be worse off. The lack of information was a major issue raised at both the convening and sanction hearings, with the landlords maintaining that they couldn't produce their own valuations without access to the underlying financial information, which the companies failed to provide or provided very late or, or it was um, insufficient. But here the judge was critical of the apparent lack of urgency by the landlord group solicitors to seek the confidential information following the convening hearing, their failure to apply to court if they felt any information was lacking, and their agreement to vacate a pretrial review where they could have raised these issues. So it was uh, the, the landlord's arguments on um, how they had been able to counter the, the company's uh, valuation evidence didn't wash with the court. So on that basis, the judge was prepared to rely on the only valuation evidence before the court, which was provided by the companies. And on the no worse off test concluded that if the plans were sanctioned, there were no creditors in any of the dissenting classes who would be worse off under the plans than in the relevant alternative of a trading administration. So condition A was met. The second issue related to exercise of the court's discretion to sanction the plans. Here, the judge didn't accept the argument um, that the courts had laid down a test that if conditions A and B were satisfied, then a plan should be sanctioned unless the court thought it was not just and equitable. 
and two important points were considered. First of all, the treatment of creditors who are out of the money, and secondly, the distribution of the restructuring surplus. The landlords argued that in the relevant alternative, shareholders would rank behind the unsecured creditors. Their shares would be worthless and they shouldn't benefit from the plans ahead of unsecured creditors. It wouldn't be fair, just or equitable for the restructuring plan, uh, sorry, for the restructuring surplus to be divided in this way, where unsecured creditors enabled the survival of the plan companies as a result of them releasing their claims under the plans. But the plan companies countered that by saying that as the landlords wouldn't receive anything in the relevant alternative, they couldn't complain about a plan approved by the secured lenders, which allowed the shareholders to receive new equity in return for new money. The judge found that the established approach in Part 26 scheme cases, which, as I said, Part 26A is closely aligned to, is that if the relevant alternative is insolvency, then the company's assets belong to the creditors who would receive a distribution, that is, the creditors who are in the money. The key principle is it is, it is for the company and creditors who are in the money to decide how the value of the business and assets should be divided up. Um, although the judge did say that there may be reasons the court would refuse to sanction a plan where there was differential treatment of creditors if this was done arbitrarily or capriciously between different classes who were all out of the money. The judge concluded on the evidence in Virgin Active that the value broke with the secured creditors who based on their security would be entitled to the value of the business of the plan companies in the relevant alternative. As the landlords were out of the money, their objections to what the secured creditors agreed with the companies carried no weight. There were also arguments made by the landlords about the level of votes cast against the plan by class B to E landlords and a significant number of the general property creditors. The plan company suggested that the, the landlords had a different agenda as it was clear they said that voting in favour of the plans was economically the most rational thing to do. In the absence of evidence from the landlords as to why they'd voted against the plans, the judge placed little weight on the opposition to the plans um, by the lower uh, ranking classes. The judge also noted that under Part 26A, creditors who are out of the money can be excluded in participating and therefore voting at a class meeting altogether. And as a result, um, dispense with the need for the company to rely on the cross-class cram down at all. Therefore, he found that the fact a dissenting class who is out of the money has voted against the plan shouldn't weigh heavily or at all in the court's decision whether to sanction and the court's power to exercise its discretion to override the wishes of a class meeting, even if 100% of the class has voted against the plan, is clear by the very nature of the power contemplated by the legislation. The, the purpose of the court's discretion to approve cram down and sanction a plan is to assess whether the proportion of the restructuring surplus allocated to a dissenting class is just and equitable, 
but this only applies between those dissenting creditors who have a genuine economic interest in the company. In other words, creditors who are in the money. So here the judge held that in all the circumstances, he should exercise his discretion to sanction the plans. Okay, so that's that, that makes sense. Um, in, in part one, of course, we looked at the new look CVA uh, in which uh, a challenge by landlords was also dismissed. Um, but we were able to pick out some comments from the judge there that offered maybe a little bit of a ray of hope for landlords in similar situations. When it comes to restructuring plans, do you think this decision leaves much ground for landlords to build on successfully in future cases in a similar way um, where different factual scenarios may apply? Well, the key point there is, of course, the different factual scenarios in any given case. Um, The findings in this judgment will certainly have left landlords reeling, but there were some limited helpful uh, comments made. I think first the, the judge noted that the court might have to look closely at a situation where the battle on sanction was between, say, the Cat A landlords as the approving class of creditors and the remaining landlords as the dissenting class, where each of those classes would be in the money in the relevant alternative. Um, Also, as I noted earlier, the judge also said that in principle, there could be reasons for the court to decline to exercise its discretion to sanction a plan that discriminated arbitrarily or capriciously between different classes of unsecured creditors who were all equally out of the money. So I think those are two areas where, um, you know, scrutiny of plans will will take place. And, And aside from those comments, on different facts and evidence, there could be a number of um, grounds to challenge the plan company on what is the relevant alternative, whether the dissenting creditors are in the money, where does the value break, whether they are worse off than in the relevant alternative, and other issues that may arise in terms of the exercise of the court's discretion to sanction Um, It's clear that establishing landlord creditors are in the money is a critical issue and that unless that hurdle is overcome, any challenge will be extremely difficult. But even in that case, there may be arguments on sanction where unsecured creditors are treated differently, where they are all out of the money. Um, I think the case also provides an opportunity to, to consider in future cases what evidence landlords need to put before the court to try to counter the company's evidence on some of these key issues. Okay, so thank you very much, Julie, for uh, giving us a very detailed analysis of the Virgin Active decision. I look forward to joining you again for the the third part uh, in our series next week when we will look at the the Regis decision and uh, maybe draw some of the threads of these three cases together and and see uh, where we think it leaves uh, landlords and tenants going forward. Thanks very much, Jess. Look forward to it. You have been listening to On The Case from EG.